our point of view is that most of the answers are solved by LTE and either directly from the drone or from the ground control station. And if we can do most of the job immediately, let's do that. Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we are Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Sean, what are we covering this episode? Well, James, we're covering LTE solutions for small UAS remote ID. As we discussed in an earlier episode, the FAA is expected to release a notice of proposed rulemaking on the remote UAS ID rules sometime early next year. Therefore, we thought it would be a good idea to speak with someone who can tell us how the LTE industry sees remote ID. Okay, so as we clearly established last episode, there's a lot of moving parts in remote ID now. Right, we, we right. All, we, we all know remote ID is key to ops over people and beyond visual line of sight operations. The FAA is hopefully uh, close to releasing a draft remote ID rules and has even asked industry about setting up remote ID service suppliers, which I think is a good idea. Then there are the tech issues that we'll discuss today. And as far as I could tell, it's a war between LTE <laughs> network guys and broadcast tech for remote ID solution. So, you know, there's a little battle going on there, battle royal, I'm sure. And there's a lot of attention focused on who the winners may be in the remote ID race to track and identify drones as they transit the national airspace system safely. And our guest today represents one of the leaders in the remote ID field because Verizon Skyward did pioneering work on FAA's uh, low-altitude authorization and notification capability, or Lance, and was one of the first approved to allow their uh, customers access to controlled airspace through Lance. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of who wins the remote ID tech wars, we have one of the most knowledgeable LTE folks in the country on today's Inside Unmanned Systems drone beat. As one of Verizon's leads on all things LTE remote ID, we are in for a treat. So we have Matt Finelli, who is the director of strategy for Verizon Skyward. Matt, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, guys. Uh, nice to nice to be here on a fine Tuesday morning. You betcha, and it is great weather here. So, all right. So, Matt, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, what? How does one get into the arcane science of uh, LTV remote ID? You start a company in a legal industry, and then <laughs> Verizon buys you a few years later. No, all, okay. all things, all, all joking aside, uh, we got into the space because it is a, it, it's brand new and wide open for innovation. And even though it's been the hype cycle has felt like it has gone on now for five or six years in the small unmanned yeah, system space, right. it's. It's really happening now. And I think you see that with the continued push from industry and, and with the FAA's recent operations over people notice of proposed rulemaking, as well as this forthcoming remote identification notice of proposed rulemaking. Real things are happening, and that's going to mean a big boon to this industry. So how did you attract what, what attracted a massive company like Verizon to a small startup like yours? I mean, it's a good question for Verizon. I think that 
they're trying to diversify their portfolio. They're looking at what are the next big industries and they make bets in those industries to see, can we bring something special to mm. it? And as you guys teed up in the intro, the the LTE networks across the United States represent a really key piece of infrastructure for the future of our Absolutely. industry. And they saw some of the things that we had been saying prior to uh, the acquisition uh, about our goals and, and hopes and dreams for the future of universal traffic management. And we kept identifying that one of the key components that would fit very nicely with our UTM platform is the LTE networks. And they uh, they seem to agree and, and our and our. <laughs> fully bought in to, to our vision now. So tell us, how are you leveraging some of that infrastructure around the country that you may have never imagined 10 years ago? I think that the, even even the quality of the infrastructure is so much improved now as opposed to 10 years ago That's that true. you're mm -hmm. seeing some of the some of the use cases today that don't even involve the beyond visual line of sight that benefit from LTE based solutions, whether that's connecting an LTE modem onto the drone itself to transmit data or, or the, the payload data back to the decision maker engineer back in the office who's making a decision about an inspection or you're doing some of the really interesting experimental work and using LTE for command and control in an autonomous wavered flight. I think those things are are certainly not what our uh, our lovely brethren on the network side were envisioning when they put this in place, but it's an absolutely fantastic use of this technology. Okay, so I saw last year where you guys actually put a phone on a drone and flew it over the circuit of the Americas, the, mm -hmm. the Formula One track, the F1 track in Austin. In Texas, mm -hmm. can you can you tell us? Would you have ever thought to have done that two or three years ago? And one editorial inject: Sean is a massive car racing fan, so be careful how you answer this. All right, I'm looking for a job here. All right, well, you can come. You can come fly uh, fly the Circuit of Americas anytime you want. So the thi one of the things okay, that that was recorded, <laughs> I got that right. Okay, one of the okay. things that our engineers do is when they're deploying a, a network or supplementary network for uh, a big event, the Super Bowl, Circuit of the Americas, any any big stadium where they expect to need to service a lot of cell phones all at the same time, they deploy extra towers, extra sites. And one way that they the, the way that they usually test that is they have engineers walk around and have their phones out along with their testing equipment to test the signal strength. Sounds extremely archaic. It is. And it takes a long time. This particular project, and as you know, at the Circuit of Americas, it's pretty large. So you need to cover quite a lot of ground. And it, it took them less than I, I may get the numbers wrong here, but I think it took them less than two hours in a project that normally takes a full day with multiple engineers because they were just able to very smoothly and quickly fly the a drone on a, on a pattern, collect their data, and make their tweaks from that. Okay, so that is our one marginally related uh, LTE car racing question that we're authorized here. But so th this seems pretty simple. Okay, so you guys in the LTE world have the spectrum, so you're not fighting over that. You, you certainly have the infrastructure. LTE chips are pretty cheap thanks to the smartphone market. Uh, is drone ID via LTE really as simple as making a cell phone call? It's actually even simpler. Really? Uh, 
in in the way that we envision at least the initial rollout of Remote ID via LTE or, or a network-based solution is that you're going to be able to run this off of your ground control station. So even if you don't do anything, it's, it's retrofit proof. You have to do a software update to your ground control station, but that ground control station will be able to network to the right server to to ping your uh, your ID and so location say it again so you don't even have to have the LTE broadcast on the aircraft you itself. don't How does that you work? don't and today this is the this is the framework for 99.99 percent of all operations in the national airspace for drones you have your drone connected via some connection to the ground control station usually an unlicensed band but you're constantly getting information back from that drone, the information, in fact, that you need for a remote identification solution. And in most of those areas, most of those operations, you have connectivity to your cell phone, which cell phone or tablet, which is often what you're using to fly. And it is a very trivial technology uh, software update to make sure you're pinging that information to the right mm. server. And so for us, we look at the the weight for remote identification is, yes, we want to get the rule right, but there shouldn't be any doubt about the fact that the technology there exists for most of our use cases. And if we're sitting here and talking about what makes the national airspace safer, I think that common operating knowledge of who is in the airspace and, and an ability to enforce the rules that we have, we've got that technologically today. And that's that's before we get into the really interesting use cases for beyond line of sight, which would require uh, either some future proofing of the drones or some some after the fact additions. But for today, most of these use cases can be met with a remote ID solution that requires a small software update. So how do you tackle those challenges dealing with, let's say, topography and geography and mountain ranges yeah. and other challenges? It's not your company, but what if you can't hear me now? Right, yeah, yeah. right, right. Well, I, I think that you guys teed this up. This is a big war, a battle royale for all of the remote identification. No, that's not and true. You're first, so you no. guys can be the Starks here in this Game of Thrones. Oh, they all, they always die though. So no Game <laughs> of Thrones spoilers. Yeah, no Game of Thrones spoilers right. here. But I think that the way we actually approach this, and the way the industry has shown uh, how this this argument goes down, is that the technology will be a neutral solution that meets a performance-based requirement. So if you are in a cellular denied environment, you're hiking in the Rockies, for example, where we do not have coverage, right. then and you want to use a drone, I think that there are the, you know, let's see, let's see how the rule comes out and what what are the performance-based requirements that they're that the FAA is going to require. But there will be a way to comply. And that might be a local broadcast mm. mechanism. And, and we've seen some really good versions of that technology. It might be a satellite connection. None of these things are none of these things are uh, one size fits all. There's always an edge case that satellite communication won't fit, that local broadcast mm. is ineffective. Our point of view is that most of the answers are solved by LTE and either directly from the drone or from the ground control station. And if we can do most of the job immediately, let's do that. So I hate it when people say crawl, walk, run, because you hear it every time you go to one of the meetings that we've discussed uh, earlier. 
But it sounds like you just said crawl, walk, run. A little bit, but is it crawling if 90 plus percent of all operations can be can be tracked using remote ID, whatever the whatever the tracking requirement is. Excellent but point. That's that's a pretty fast crawl. No, it, it sounds like Crow Magnum Man is about to start to walk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just think that it's the reality, even in the commercial enterprise, that most folks are flying DJI of, of some stripe, depending on their, their operation. Yeah, it's certainly in the consumer, prosumer market, yeah. Consumer, prosumer, and even enterprise. I mean, we see this amongst our customers that there are a vast majority of them have have DJI in their fleet or, or uh, are mostly a DJI shop. Now, we have a ground control station that is built on top of their SDK. That ground control station just so happens to have the ability to to remote identi- remotely identify that that operation, that operator, and that that location. This isn't challenging work. This is far and away some of the easiest work that that we do at Skyward. I don't think it's a, a stretch to say that you can do this across the rest of the, the the generally available commercial drone fleets. And if most of you, you can attack most of the problem using a quick software solution that's networked to the right server based on the rules that the FAA sets, that to me sounds a lot like the Lance program. It sounds like some smart regulation, a little bit of technology that really improves the the safety of the national airspace. Okay, Matt, so you're taking a little bit of the air out of my Game of Thrones uh, theory here. So what what you're saying is essentially, if you got the 90% solution or 95% or maybe even 99% solution, do that and then have specific technologies also in the standard that allows you when you you can't hear me now. Did did you just say that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, man. That's right. And, you know, for us... uh, we see remote identification as a necessary next step for the safety of the national airspace. I don't think anyone serious in this industry looks out there and says everything is being done according to the rules and, oh, we're sure that everyone is flying correctly. I think that we do have a problem there and that remote identification surely makes the national airspace safer. The second thing that is beyond this, if you do want to talk uh, crawl, walk, run, is this enables things like beyond visual line of sight. And now when those drones are connected directly to the LTE network, you've got a persistent, reliable, secure communication system over the course, over the breadth of our national coverage map. And, you know, I'm you know team Verizon here. We have a pretty darn good coverage map. That coverage map equals new kinds of operations for all sorts of commercial operators. And we're working closely with the FAA and our enterprise customers to make sure that that experience is as, is as good and safe as it needs to be. But that's that's the really interesting part for us. So it's not we're not that interested in fighting about who's going to win a remote identification solution. We think there are a lot of things that can serve the national airspace and make things safer. What we're interested is continuing to push the industry forward and getting to beyond line of sight in routine, autonomous, uh, repeatable ways. Okay, so it sounds like you're not going to fight. We're going to have to give you a neutral party in Game of Thrones. You're the bank of bravos, I think, for all you <laughs> Game of Thrones nerds out there. And full disclosure, I am a Verizon customer. I do have a Verizon connection that we're listening to right now. So... Um, I'm AT&T. Oh, no, Sean. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. So 
apologize, but I, I'm surprised James didn't follow up on just a second ago. And in, in, in when you talk about a secure network, mm -hmm. can you can you embellish upon that a little bit more? Um, you know, from from that perspective. Uh, LTE guys are pretty good at security, but I'll let you answer that. They are, and this is one of the things that one of the conversations that we had during the remote identification arc a couple years ago, if, mm -hmm. if you guys remember. We need to be sure of the, the the reliability of the connection. And that's sort of one step in the security process. Are we sure that the number that is sending the, the ID that is sending that remote identification is one of ours? Is it who it says it is? Turns out Verizon is pretty good at doing that. That's something that our network teams have been doing now for decades. And that's, I think, one of the ways in which the using the the secure and the uh, licensed spectrum offers an improvement over only relying on the unlicensed. It's not to say that it is completely unspoofable. The the technology out there is is uh, the hacker technology is impressive. But it's certainly a step or two above an unlicensed band that is subject to interference, that is subject to power and wattage limitations. Like that's a problem with some of the Bluetooth solutions that we've seen out there. Uh, it's, okay, you're starting to fight. That was a, that was a bad thing about Bluetooth. It was a lot. Okay, got you. Yeah, side, you know, I, I do. I, I think that that's the other that's the other part about the LTE option is that. There are a lot of these built-in advantages because it is commercial spectrum that there's been a lot of investment put into the infrastructure to receive and manage those, those network nodes. And from the Verizon side, those advantages, there's a reason that we use LTE networks to communicate with voice and to the internet rather than only unlicensed or only some of these other RF, RF spectrum. So I, I think that the security and the safety, that especially becomes important when you're talking about quality of your link, of your command and control link for a beyond visual line of sight. But I think that it also matters a little bit here. And it's worth saying for remote identification, we want to know that this system is reliable enough. And uh, once we're talking at the densities that I think we all hope to see, it's it's not clear to me that something like Bluetooth or or a, uh, a, a Wi-Fi-like connection is going to be able to meet those same quality of service standards that the LT networks do every day. Okay. All right, Matt, we got to take a break now to hear from our sponsor. But when we get back, let's drill down on the challenges of implementing LTE for unmanned aviation. Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rody and Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rody and Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. Welcome back, folks, to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Our guest today is Matt Finelli with Verizon. Matt, what are the differences between LTE connectivity with me driving down the highway and connecting with potentially thousands of drones flying at 400 feet in the same geographic location? And then, and then I have a follow-up. What are the biggest challenges adapting LTE to unmanned aviation? 
Our team has spent the last two years, really two full years, testing LTE at altitude. And what are the impacts on the network? What are the interference characteristics? What are the things that are different about flying a drone with a, a modem attached to it versus one that is sitting in your phone in your car? And as we mentioned earlier, our network engineers didn't anticipate that we were going to see hundreds or thousands of drones flying above the network and in in that sort of aerial view. And so the network isn't specifically designed for that. I think that we'll, we'll be the, the first ones to tell you that the network is designed in such a way to serve the terrestrial users first. And that's likely to continue to be true. However, in our in our testing, one of the things that was surprising is that when you put a drone above the the city skyline, you now see a lot more towers, and that is both a good thing and a ch technical challenge. Where your drone, we we've have some tests from the last year where uh, in an area where on the ground your cell phone had the the choice between maybe four or five different towers that it would switch between in its neighbor tree setup, the drone could see thirty. Right. Oh, wow. Thir and those were up to 12, 18 miles away that it could see. The, the tower. So how does it stop from switching between? That is the issue. It's not the software isn't built for it to smartly switch between the ones that it can see. But this is one of. The, so did you fry some software? We didn't fry any software, and really we didn't <laughs> or actually hardware. We didn't impact the network. It just happened to be we noticed that the fried software. It's what's for dinner. Yeah, <laughs> we just noticed that the the handoffs had a really interesting pattern and that the modem on the drone was broadcasting at a higher So what wattage. does interesting mean? Can you define interesting pattern? Well, it, it was jumping around. It it persisted I, in the one that I'm recalling, the connection persisted to a tower that was about 12 miles away for a long portion of the flight and then switched to one that was two, to one that was one, to one that was two, to one that was mm -hmm. six it, during the course of the flight. So there's no rhythm there. It's just some could be six seconds, some could be a minute. That's and right. Some could be nanoseconds. That's right. And it was a uh, it's an engineering challenge that doesn't matter when there's one drone up there, but when there are hundreds or thousands, you want those drones to be switching uh, in, a, in a smart way. And some of the recommendations that we're making at 3GPP, which you might know is the teleco, telecom standards organization that uh, defines the standards for the LTE networks, some of the suggestions that we've made are related to this, these handover challenges. And the, some of the improvements that we've already implemented are, are making those handover uh, switching much easier for the drone, much easier on the network. And and for us, it's it's one of those great things you learn by doing. We learned, we've we've now implemented some of these changes. And I, I think that it's one of those things that no one who is flying a drone is ever gonna know, but it's it's fun stuff for us engineering. Geeks. So you're doing things to make it more predictable. More predictable, more uh, reliable, uh, more efficient as well. I think that that was one of the other components is that we wanted the efficiency of uh, the the same efficiencies that you get when your your cell phone and your car knows to switch over from tower to tower as it's passing. 
the drone can do that same thing and we can we can make it more efficient, make sure it has the best connection that maybe has the lowest load on that tower. There's a lot of smarts that can go on behind the scenes. OK, all right. Still still trying to get you to fight here, get you into the away from the Bank of Bravos, get you into the uh, Targaryen class here. So, I mean, you get, you do get a lot of flag from the broadcast guys. So, uh, you know, some of the stuff they'll say, I think, unfortunately, you answered, uh, you know, what do you do when you're out of cell phone coverage pretty well? But uh, what about stuff like, uh, OK, so you're going to put the LTE chip on the on the laptop at the ground station. What if the drone goes lost link uh, and it's got no LTE chip on board? Answer. What do you say to the naysayers that are that are really saying LTE is just it's great for cars, just not ready for aircraft? I, I, it's one of those things. I, I think that your concept of operations drives what you need for the the technology. And if your concept of operations is in an LTE denied environment, then LTE isn't great for you. If your concept of operations happens to be across the 99% of the country that has LTE coverage, there's a good chance that LTE can work. And I, I think it's a great point to point out that redundancy is a, a key for safety. I don't think that that's something that remote ID is necessarily going to require. I, this is just my guess. I, I don't think that uh, there's going to be a provision in there for specific procedures when you have a lost link. I think that's part of the reason why we have the. Ooh, I think there should be. Maybe, 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 maybe there should be. I, I think that in the in the use case that I described, we would be happy to to have all of the drones connected via LTE directly, as well as having uh, secondary communications. I think that for the wavered applications that we've been doing, that's how our setups look, is we've got LTE, but we also have some backup. We even um, have some some SATCOM occasionally on, on the rigs that we use. But that is, uh, I think that's driven by our concept of operations and that we aren't going to, um, we're not gonna see 90% of the drones out there needing to have satellite communications as well as an LTE on the drone, as well as their, their right. unlicensed. Yeah, and we can't say the name of the company, but you had a good point. Uh, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. A large package delivery um, company said, same question, you know, LTE is not everywhere. And well, we're not, not really interested in delivering packages by drones everywhere, only where there's good solid LTE coverage. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Yep. And you do mention that, you know, even though you do have, it sounds like one of your biggest challenges is once you reach out higher altitudes, you know, uh, the plus to that or the silver lining to that cloud is that you do have opportunities for redundancy. Mm -hmm. You've just increased it actually almost tenfold where you actually do have some type of backup there that you didn't have with the ground level uh, Areas. That's right. Even even if you're just talking about an operation that is generally within your visual line of sight, when you've got the option for 10 or 12 or 18 different redundant connections mm -hmm. to the drone, that's better than your one light bridge connection, uh, okay. for example. Right. You, you just need point. to get get smart on how to keep switching randomly from one tower to the other. And, yeah. And I guess the question yeah, is, is that... It's an engineering challenge. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when do you think you'll solve that challenge? Well, I, our engineers have already made recommendations to, to for how uh, how that 
particular technical challenge can be improved. And I think it's, I may have this wrong, but it may be in one of the already public uh, 3GPP mm -hmm. next releases, might be in release 15, which I believe is public. And so I can talk about it. Um, we can double check that, but I'm pretty sure that those recommendations are already in the 3GPP architecture. So that at least takes a, it another step forward. I, you know, I, there's always efficiencies and things that can be improved, but that certainly looks like one that is um, that is well within hand. So I, I guess I just would follow up with manned aviation. Is there any scenario there where manned aircraft will have to get LTE receivers? Yeah, so you got to or well, get to. I, okay, so here, here is out. So you, you got a helicopter coming in, and uh, if you went with ADSB, so that helicopter is guaranteed to have ADSB receive in there, and you can get that directly from the drone. Mm -hmm. How would that work? Where the drone's on LTE, and you got a helicopter coming through, and he needs to know where the drone is. So I, I, I was having a conversation last week with a senior FAA official, and he noted that in Australia, for example, the LTE companies are a big provider of avionics services. Hmm. And their GA crowd uses LTE-based responders or transponders to really? report their positions. And guess what? It works better than <laughs> <What>? ADSB. <laughs> it has better coverage in the areas where they're flying. It requires very little data, so it's not an impact to the ground networks and is a more efficient system. It's a better way for them to get to the to the internet and broadcast their their positioning. And he was suggesting, not not promising, but suggesting that a solution like that might look really useful for our GA community and our and our low flying uh, low flying man community. Well, uh, yeah, you you kind of touched on it before, but you know, for ADSB, we've got what's called aviation protected spectrum, which is you know a frequency and then uh, a few megahertz before and after it's protected. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you offer the same degree of reliability in your portion of the spectrum that that helicopter would get off of aviation protected spectrum on his ADSB? So I, I think it's not a surprise, but it's a lot better than the performance on the aviation protected spectrum, because as you know, you the aviation spectrum. protected spectrum gets certified and remains static and has to be the same way all the time. That is not true of the commercial LTE networks. We have our bands that we are serving, but we're constantly improving that quality of service. That's It's kind of like looking at the ADS system is 90, the best of the 90s technology, and the LTE networks are continuing to evolve into the, the 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s and beyond. And, you know, we talk about what are the, the levels of service and reliability that we can start to bring. Well, 5G and the sets of technology that surround that take it above and beyond the, the types of, of performance that we're seeing on even the LTE networks significantly, which, again, is a big step in performance and reliability from the ADS systems. Now, this isn't to say that there's going to be some big change if you're flying, you know, instrument flight rules, final approach. There's good reasons for those systems to be very, very stable and and reliable in that sense. So then you're talking about flying around class G. I think that the solution that is going to be the best is the one where it is available, it's secure, and meets the, the concept of operations, which in this case isn't guided down to, to final approach at DCA. This is, what's your position? Is anything else around you? 
seems like that's a technology that might yeah. be might be ripe for improving the the lives and, of the GA community. You could rebroadcast the LTE tracks via ADSB out the Tisby thing, so that makes sense. Okay, all right, so that's a, that's a good answer. Uh, all right, so we can't nail you on the cost of infrastructure because that's ubiquitousness everywhere. How about your business plan? Am I going to get a $50 a month fee for my uh, LTE drone out there? Or how, how are you going to, it's going to cost something. How are you getting your money back? Yeah, I, I think that it depends again on what your use case is. I just described a scenario where in the initial rollout, you're going to be able to meet the remote identification requirement using your existing cell phone plan. It's just another application that maybe you use Skyward because it has it's a USS, a US so, service so like supplier. You get, a, you get an iWatch, you got a cell phone, you get an iPad, you get a Skyward. Yeah, and, okay. and and you're flying using Skyward and Skyward's reporting your position per the remote identification rule. That is built into the cost of our subscription platform. And then when you start talking about connecting the drones themselves, of course, that's another connection that we need to manage. And that that is a thing that Verizon that that's that's our business is adding new connections mm -hmm. and making sure that those connections are reliable and smart and safe. So, of course, there will be a, a charge for that. Um, the LTE service portion of the of the drone as to what that cost will be i mean i think we're still in the we're still in the early stages but uh, i i think of course we'll we'll charge for that for that privilege to have an lte connected drone to go fly beyond visual line of sight it's our view that our customers the large delivery companies of the world the large enterprises of the world have that built into their cost of doing business Matt, uh, thank you so much for your interesting insight into how Verizon Skyward is working to advance remote ID through LTE. James, what will we be covering in our next series? Okay, in our next episode, we're going to be covering the competing technology, although Matt took a lot of the wind out of my sails on that one. Uh, we got John Daniels, CEO of Praxis Aerospace Concept, on board next to talk about the uh, the broadcast services out there. He's been boots on the ground, and, and he is an Army guy, uh, since the early years, and is one of those guys who will offer his unvarnished opinion on what really works and who's selling vaporware. Well, folks, this concludes episode 10 of our remote ID Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat series. I'd like to thank our guest, Matt Finelli, with Verizon Skyward and wish him only the best of luck. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. 